Welcome to the Lindauer Global Leadership Podcast. Lindauer is setting the standard for recruiting, developing, and retaining leaders and their teams in education, healthcare and science, advocacy, and arts and culture organizations. We hope you enjoy and are inspired by the following conversation. Hello, I'm Deb Taft, CEO of Lindauer. I'm speaking today with Misa Lobato, a leader in the prospect development world. And we're pleased to be launching this podcast with MISA to coincide with the annual conference of AASP, the Association of Advancement Services Professionals, which in 2020 has gone virtual. So a special hello to all members of the AASP community and to this year's conference attendees. I and many of us at Lindauer are honored to be participating once again. Misa Lobato is Director of Prospect Management and Analytics in the Office of Institutional Engagement at Rhode Island School of Design. She's also the new president of APRA, a professional association that serves members who work in prospect development and prospect research, data analytics and data management, campaigns, annual giving, and relationship management. In her leadership of APRA, Misa has been focusing on how the nonprofit sector can take intentional, deliberate steps to become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. In our conversation today, she will share some of the ways this work is disrupting how we think about wealth screening, donor engagement, and gift agreements and structures, as well as board development and advancement staff retention. Welcome, Misa, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Deb. It is a pleasure to be here. Misa, as a leader in our field, you've often spoken about how philanthropy is a means for providing solutions, for example, in the form of scholarships or programming in higher education created to support students, particularly black, brown, indigenous, and students of color who may hail from economically disadvantaged environments. But those solutions often don't actually end up working for the people they're meant to support and may even do more harm than good. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is an issue that is often referred to as the proximity issue, which is that People with the closest proximity to the lived experience or the challenges or the issues related to being from a marginalized community are the people who are best equipped to identify solutions. And so we have often in in the way that we've been um, working in philanthropy in higher education and and in the nonprofit sector, we've been very focused on, um, on donor centrism. So that often involves bringing in a donor as a partner and a co-visionary in coming up with solutions. And that donor might not have any lived experience of those issues. And so their lack of proximity to the issue um, can often prevent them from, from understanding what a good solution would be. So an example of this would be, I was a student at the University of Colorado. I had guaranteed admission at CU um, because I was a Colorado resident. I was in the top 5% of the incoming class at CU and and I had met the threshold of guaranteed admission. And I was immediately placed into the honors program. But at that same time, I was contacted without having applied for this particular scholarship. I was contacted by an office at CU that said that they would offer me a small scholarship for students from a rural area. I am a Latina, so students of color from a rural area they had this separate program and the program would provide me with an additional advisor. That advisor would regularly be checking in with my teachers 
and and would be checking in on my grades. And I received a small scholarship without having applied for it. And at the time I thought, I mean, I guess this is great that I'm getting this scholarship, but I also thought that going to school at CU, I was already set up for success. I was already going to be in the honors program. My experience at CU was very different than I expected it to be. And I think that's that's the experience of a lot of people who are from, I'm from a, a very poor, small farming town in a rural area. I think that the experience of, of going from that small, largely Latino um, community to this very wealthy town in Boulder, which is largely white. Um, the, the student body at CU is not terribly diverse. There is some diversity in the student body, but CU as an institution um, was not necessarily an inclusive institution. And so I came in thinking that I would do really well. I had always done well in school and I just didn't do well. And it was really hard for me. I didn't feel like I had a community. I never had money. All of the people in my dorm, I remember them going out to eat all the time. I never had money to go out to eat. And it was, it was a really isolating experience. I didn't feel, I didn't feel connected to a community at all. And I actually dropped out of school twice. Um, and then the second time I came back, I added an ethnic studies major and that community kind of really helped me get through. But the, the purpose of this entire story is to say that what happened with that scholarship was that as I started not doing well and as I started having problems at CU, I would be contacted by this advisor and they were really, they were contacting my teachers every week and they were asking me like, do you need additional, additional tutors? Like, what are the issues? And the issue wasn't that I couldn't understand the curriculum. It was that I felt so isolated and, um, and disconnected. And so even though that program was developed with the best of intentions and was developed in partnership with a donor who did want to help minority students from a rural area to have a better college experience and to be more likely to graduate from college. Um, and all of those intentions are great. It wasn't what actually helped me get through school. And, and I think that without having the experience of coming into an organization where you already feel othered and you already feel like you aren't similar to, to the rest of the people who are around you, I think it would be very hard to identify what the right solution would be. So you might think that additional advising and additional tutoring would be what would help you get through, but it wasn't, it wasn't actually what I needed. So this issue of proximity is one of the major issues I believe in why we haven't been able to get the nonprofit sector to be effective at solving for the things that it is trying to solve for. And you know, that runs the gamut from homelessness, poverty, you know, increasing diversity in higher education, just any of those issues. There are certainly things that are being done that are meaningful and well-intentioned, but we also need people who have experienced those issues to kind of come in and offer their perspective on how to create a good solution. You happen to tell a, a very important personal story about a higher ed institution. And we've seen, you and I've seen this play out across a number of institutions of, of higher education. 
in the United States and frankly, globally. I mean, these, these patterns exist in, in so many communities, but I think about healthcare and the patient and family programs, the design of patient and family programs and how um, individuals engage in healthcare communities and their own care, um, the youth services organizations or other social service organizations. We talk about improving DEI in our organizations, but many times that discussion ends with diversity only, a numbers approach, hiring a more diverse staff. But you and I understand that organizations need to think far beyond individual staffs to diversify boards and leadership, but also to create inclusive communities. How does that start? In your, in your sense of, of, of looking at this? Well, I think the first thing is that the issue of not having diverse staff, that issue intersects with the fact that we don't have diverse boards and that we don't have diverse donors. Yeah. Um, I've heard of so many gift officers, Black, Latino, trans gift officers who are hired and they're deployed against a portfolio and they start meeting with people. And sometimes they're meeting with people who are actively hostile to their rights. And so this idea that somehow we can hire a black fundraiser and that black fundraiser is going to diversify our donor base or solve for these issues within our organization, the lack of diversity within our organization, um, I think just doesn't, doesn't really take into account the, like the full scope of the issue. So if you, if you have a, a non-diverse board, then donors might see that non-diverse board and they might feel like they can't see themselves within the organization. And so the, the non-diverse board is perpetuating the issue of, of having a non-diverse donor base. The non-diverse donor base is perpetuating the issue of not being able to retain diverse staff. So even when we, even when we go through the intentional process of hiring diverse staff, we're, we're not necessarily setting them up for success by putting them into, the, into a position in which they're going to feel like they are included and that, um, and that they're working with, with donors who will, um, who will be you know, willing to engage with them. So, so I think that's part of the thing that we have to start unpacking and unpacking maybe some of the other underlying reasons why our not why our organizations are not diverse. Um, you know, in, in higher education, I think one of the things that we often fail to take ownership of is just the ways in which we have disenfranchised or marginalized groups of people. And we have created this sort of othering experience. And then we're going back to these people and wanting to engage them as alumni. And they're already feeling like, why do you care about me as an alumnus? You didn't care about me as a student. I think that that commitment to diversification and to inclusivity um, doesn't feel authentic to to, to those people. And so I think that we have to be willing to like really look at what we've done within our own communities that may have harmed people. And, you know, one of the things related to boards, um, this is a really important point that I read in a study and it has to do, it also has to do with another issue related to, to hiring in diverse communities. And it's the, the issue of network-based disadvantage. And so we know in hiring that 
that if you do a, a network-based hiring process, then you often are just kind of replicating the, the kinds of people that already work within the organization. That's true in boards too. So if you, um, if you have a non-diverse board, those people are getting the opportunity, getting the leadership and networking opportunities with other people who are wealthy or powerful. And, and that is perpetuating the cycle of not bringing in people from marginalized communities into those arenas of power and influence. And so I think that's, I think that's a thing that we have to, we have to recognize that beyond just the fact that we're not doing a good job diversifying, we might actually be doing active harm to the issue of equity. So I think that the, one of the first things we need to do after we kind of do that, that internal assessment is to articulate what makes our organizations a good investment for diverse donors or what makes it a, a good opportunity for, for um, you know, board service if you are a person from a marginalized community or what makes your workplace a good workplace for, for diverse staff. So I think having a, that articulation and really really being able to identify what are the things that are you know, specifically unique to your organization that really makes you a, a, I guess I would say, an attractive organization to these diverse communities is sort of the first place. And, and then the, the next thing you need to do is strengthen cultural competency within your organization. So cultural competency, there are a number of ways that you can do cultural competency assessments for your organization, but I think you need to take ownership of identifying where your gaps are in cultural competency and then and then shoring up those gaps by learning about those communities by you know reaching out to people who have have already been working within those communities or within those issues and learning more and learning from advocacy organizations and i think that strengthening cultural competency puts you in a better position first to engage diverse donors and secondly to hire diverse staff and I think that, that those sort of foundational things of, um, of exploring why you're not doing well in diversity and then understanding where you do have an opportunity or you know, what, what makes you a good organization for, um, for, di- for a diverse constituency to engage with. And then finally, in ensuring that you're building cultural competency, that's the, what has to underlay that authentic commitment to diversity. And I think without doing that work, it would be very hard for you to go in front of a community that you haven't been engaging with and, and sound credible and authentic in your commitment to engaging with them. This issue of cultural competence is so critical when we are working with organizations to bring in diverse team members we always caution them that the best talent will be asking the tough questions about cultural competence. They will be asking about the board, about the leadership team, about the community that's being created, including as broadly as vendor selection um, and you know the entire approach to how an, an organization provides provides education or provides whatever de- mission delivery that it's it's providing. So I think it's you, Misi, you're raising a very very important point. I want to move to the issue of donor engagement. It's a key element for fundraising. 
beginning with how fundraisers first connect with donors through events and or personal introductions, all the way to how a donor involved a donor might be in how their gift is actually allocated, uh, who and what that gift benefits inside the organization. To create a truly inclusive donor engagement approach, one that actively and intentionally engages a diverse base of donors, you call for organizations to break their thinking from traditional models. What do you mean by that? I think many organizations, including organizations I've worked for, pride themselves on being donor-centric. And that idea of donor centrism is often allowing donors to have, to have influence or prioritizing their wants and desires sometimes above the wants and desires of other people in your organization. I've worked in organizations where whole programs were developed in response to one donor who was very interested in the, in the organization having that program. And so Yes, we have, we've really done a lot of work to, to center a donor in our decision-making and also in our, in our actions. So we're, you know, we're doing this stewardship work that is about centering donors. We're doing a lot of celebrating of individual donors. And I think that we need to break that framework and think about philanthropy as a source of collective action. So there's a number of reasons why I think this is true. First, if you look at the philanthropic giving behaviors of of generations like millennials and Gen Z, their philanthropic giving behaviors are not similar to those of baby boomers. And I think this is an issue, I worked in annual giving, this is an issue that we were really thinking about in annual giving and how we were going to account for this because we were seeing declining participation. You know, there's, there's a number of things that sort of factor into this issue of improving millennial engagement. But one of the, one of the things is that we are not creating necessarily the type of philanthropy that millennials are connecting with. And one of those things is crowdfunding. I don't know if you follow the Facebook or Instagram series, Humans of New York. Yes. But over the last couple of weeks, it's been really amazing. They featured this story of this one person. And the idea of Humans of New York was just to um, to give you like a direct connection to an individual person. And so you would be reminded of the fact that every person that you pass on the street is um, is facing their own issues and dealing with their own Set of battles. And, um, and so this creating this experience of humanity is a, is a big piece of, of his work. So he did this specifically very closely with one person. He, he told 32 separate stories with this one person. And, and there's times where he will tell multiple stories of, of a single person, but this is the most that he's ever done. And at the same time, he was raising money for her long-term care because she has been ill and she needs she needs additional long-term care support. And he raised two and a half million dollars for one person in about the course of a week, I believe. And so I think that you can see that there are effective models of philanthropy, but those models are really based on human connection. Another thing where I see this really evident is in communities of color that give through philanthropic giving circles or mutual aid societies. 
And I think both of those, the, the sort of foundational element of both of those is that sense of community connection. And so I think if we have to move away from this idea of individual donor centrism to an idea of community giving, um, a community giving that's inclusive, community giving that creates space for people who aren't wealthy and still allows them to have, to have some insight and also some influence over the, the way our organization is going to operate. So I, I think that is part of the breaking their thinking. Another piece I think that is really important in the breaking their thinking is that there is this sort of, I, and maybe maybe people don't believe this anymore, but there's been this sort of prevalent belief that, um, that some communities are not philanthropic. Rather than understanding that, um, that, that different communities have different types of philanthropy or different ways of engaging in philanthropy, we, um, we sort of put everybody against the single model of Western philanthropy and we, we test as to whether or not they are engaging in that model. And so I think that we have to be willing to, um, to think about the, the different priorities and processes and practices of other communities as, a, as it relates to philanthropy. And that's a really complicated thing I think to do because I have worked in philanthropy for a long time, 20 years, and I have, have accepted and often was preaching these ideas of best practices in philanthropy. And now I believe that some of those best practices are actually harming our sector as it relates to diversifying and, um, and inclusivity. And so, um, so I think that's, that's part of the breaking is just getting out of the belief that we already know how to do philanthropy right, that there's one single model of philanthropy, that everybody ought to be participating in philanthropy in a single way, and, and that we should, be, we should be engaging in a type of philanthropy that's donor-centric. So that's kind of what I refer to as sort of breaking, breaking your, um, breaking your thinking in this space. Well, I love this. And I, I think it's receiving, you and I know, actually, it's thankfully receiving a fair amount of attention and conversation and discussion in the, in the philanthropy community right now. It makes me think about being in, um, in Indonesia and Bangkok and Hong Kong in the 90s speaking with families who were considering extraordinary philanthropy to United States institutions, but most leaders at the time were trying to fit the families into an American philanthropy model, when in fact, there were extraordinary models of charity and philanthropy in these countries for years, it just was different from a US model. And I'm, I, love, I love the evolution of that. I was with a, a donor, yesterday, actually, who a, a, a black mother who was talking about philanthropy and saying, I could leverage my family, but her family was her group of women friends. Her family was her group of college HBCU friends. And what she wanted philanthropy to look like was so different than what the organization was hoping to secure. And we're going to have to travel that road um, with her. I was also in a room last year with black donors in Houston who said, 
it's amazing how long it took before my college asked me for money. Mm-hmm. They were asking all of my white friends, but yeah. I was black and they weren't coming to visit me. And here we are. And finally, gift officers began to go out and ask and get in conversation, including in some painful situations where uh, students had been disregarded during their college years. And yet the healing was actually through the process of the gift conversation. The, tr- mm-hmm. the journey forward with their institution together was in the journey of the gift conversation. So I'm often find myself saying to philanthropy leaders right now who say, well, how do I reach my donors of, co- of color? And I said, well, how did you reach your current donor base? You got in conversation. <laughs> Go get in conversation. And, and those journeys will be profound. Um, yeah. It's, it's really... I think it's an exciting time in our field. I have a tactical question. There are, there are very tactical ways that prospect development professionals in particular can engage in this work in terms of their organization's data to examine how and to take active steps to diversify volunteer leadership, donor communities, engaged communities overall. This is something I know APRA is placing great focus on right now. Can you describe this work? I started to really think about the way that APRA and people who work in prospect development are sort of uniquely positioned to be change agents in this space. And I guess the first thing I have to say is that we also have to own that that our specific profession has been part of the issue in terms of keeping organizations focused on the same types of donors and um, even you know, with the with the emergence of analytical models in philanthropy and um, and predictive analytics and in philanthropy, we have been perpetuating a lot of the sameness in our donor bases, yes, and yes. of keeping wealthy people as sort of the wealthy people who already have power and influence as the primary focus of our efforts in relationship management. So I think first we have to examine that and we have to consider the influence of bias in the data that we're using. And the the reality is that there's not, I mean, maybe the wealth screening vendors would feel uncomfortable with me saying this, but there's not a way to do wealth screening that isn't inherently biased. All of that data already has bias and it has bias because even at an organizational level, there were practices of always crediting a husband in a relationship instead of a wife, even if the wife signed the check, even if the wife was the alumna, Um, the husband was credited. And that was a standard practice for a long time. And that has led to, you know, this belief that you look at your data and you think, wow, men in our organization are more statistically likely to become significant donors. It isn't true, but it looks that way on the surface. And so there are a lot of, there's a lot of inherent bias in the data that we have to explore. Um, And I think we're well positioned to do that exploration. And then we have a, a few other key competencies that I think are essential to this specific issue. One is that we understand prospect identification and we understand how you start identifying prospects in, 
different communities and how you identify people whose, um, whose personal experiences and passions connect with your organization. And so I think um, making those connections is something that prospect development has already been doing. We've been looking at people's philanthropic practices. We've been looking at their individual life experiences and we've been connecting them with areas of our organization that, that sort of speak to those things. And we can do that um, in a more intentional way with communities, with marginalized communities. If we come into this, to this practice with the, the organization already having done the work of thinking about the ways that it is meeting or, or specifically working to meet the needs of marginalized communities. Um, I think it's, we can enter into that and be very purposeful in, a, in identifying prospects. We can identify them both as donors, we can identify them as board members, we can identify them for events. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is just the, the incredible networking power that comes from nonprofit events. And if those events are not diverse, then that is, a, that is an, another area of exclusion that is preventing people from developing these, these stronger networks. So I, I think we have to think about it at that level. I think that point about events is so interesting right now, 2020 in a, in a COVID influenced world when so many organizations are hosting virtual events. Yes. Greater participation coming from a far more diverse group of supporters and community members because of the virtual access where they weren't sure that they wanted to go to that home or that club or that space before. And now the doors have been blown open. The, the channels, the Zoom channels and the other channels have been blown open. And um, I think a number of organizations are reporting individuals coming from much further and wider um, circumference or, or nationally, cross-regionally in organizations. And I'm, I'm hoping it actually produces the result. We still have the issue of a black or a brown or an indigenous person coming on a screen or a trans person coming on a screen and only seeing someone, people who don't look like them. Mm-hmm. But, but what I'm hearing from some organizations is they're finding already um, a shift in the in the populations that are appearing appearing on the screen or and attending the events virtually. So yeah. see the long term implications of that. I think this is the perfect time to deploy a, a strategy against that because people are more comfortable with attending an event that they're attending from their own home and that they know they can leave if they want to as if, if it feels uncomfortable, they're not having to show up in person. And I think this is a really great time that we should be intentionally trying to, to network with people that we haven't been engaging before. And it's also a, a unique time in that everyone is experiencing the same challenges. I remember at the, the sort of the early stages of social isolation, when you would turn on the TV and there would be commercials about being in this together. And there were times where I actually felt that way. I, I was thinking about other people just walking down the street and thinking everybody is having this shared experience. And so I think this is a, a great time to be, to be acknowledging that we have shared experiences, to be connecting with people that we haven't been connecting with. And then also to be learning about 
why these people haven't been connecting with us and how we might do a better job of engaging with them in the future. And I think that learning piece can be really uncomfortable because it can be that you are finding out things that your organization did in the past that harmed another person. But I I think that to your point, an important part of the healing and that idea of philanthropy as being part of the healing. And I, I think that's beautiful. If we, if we believe in philanthropy as that, the love of humanity, it is a, a method of connection and healing that can be very powerful. You know, Misa, what strikes me in our conversation and in everything that you've shared with us is that it's imperative that, that leaders of organizations presidents and CEOs, chief development officers, board chairs, everyone with the potential to influence and enact inclusion must be intentional and deliberate in this work. Real change happens through such individual agency and taking of responsibility. It's multi-layered, it's complex and ongoing, as we know. There are not quick or easy solutions here, but we must move forward and continue to do this work every day. And I know one of the very difficult topics right now, challenging topics, is the collection of data. Can you talk a bit more about that? One thing that I saw happening in our prospect development community was suddenly this summer people were saying, you know, the VP of my organization is asking me for a list of our Black alumni. And we don't have such a list because we haven't been recording any of that information. And then also it's, I feel challenged by the idea of providing that list without necessarily, you know, understanding how it would be used. So we in APRA have been, um, and we're doing work right now on creating guidelines on the collection, the ethical collection and use of identity data. I think that one of the things that we have to get past is this idea that collecting information on someone's identity is problematic or that it is somehow, I guess, perpetuating marginalization. That knowing someone is black is going to perpetuate this this issue of treating them like they are black. But race, itself is not the issue. Racism is the issue. And I think that by not acknowledging that someone is Black or not understanding that their experience um, as a Black person in the United States is going to be very different than the experience of a white person in the United States, we are not coming at them. We are not communicating with them in a way that, um, that is meaningful or that is contextually appropriate to them. I've worked in organizations that were very uncomfortable with storing race or ethnicity. And I think that we have to start collecting that data and we have to start doing it in a way that allows people to self-identify and to self-identify regularly. And, and also to commun- in that process to communicate why we're asking for the information and how it would be used. We just did this at APRA, we just rolled out a a large effort to collect identity data from our membership. And when we did that, we said that the reason why we're doing this is because we want want our understanding of the demographic 
aspects of our community to inform our programming and our governance. We want to be able to ensure that we have appropriate representation in our governance, that we are meeting the needs of, of a disabled member, um, that we're understanding where people are coming from in their careers, and that we are putting in place all of the practices that we ought to be putting in place as an organization to be inclusive. And, and so I think when you communicate up front, this is the reason why we're asking for the information. It's voluntary. You don't have to provide it, but we're asking you to provide it so that you can help us improve. And I think when you communicate that, people will feel more comfortable about providing it. And I think if, if you're a person of color and you're being asked to provide information about your identity, then, um, then knowing exactly where, where that information is gonna go, how it will be used, how it will be protected is important. The, the other thing to this issue is that we might be asking for information that other people don't know. So we might ask about a person's sexual identity and that might not be something that they've shared with other people. So we also have to have practices in place to think about you know, what, how we use the information, um, how it's given to other people in our organization and how they should approach the, the use, um, how, what kind of sensitivities we should have around sharing lists or thinking about using that, even, even if we're doing it for board diversification um, and we're sharing this specific identity because we are saying we want to diversify our board and we want to ensure that we have diverse candidates for our board. Um, what you put on a board nomination form is important. And so, um, so the, the language that we use is important. And so all of those elements around collecting the information ethically, storing it and using it in a way that's mindful and ethical and sensitive and contextually appropriate are really important issues that we, we need to be working with in, in the nonprofit industry. And that's something that APRA has been really focused on. You're really walking your members through. They're walking the walk. Ultimately, each will, will be leading forward in their own organizations um, because we know so many organizations are, are precisely on this, this walk. I love your statement, race is not the problem, racism is the problem. And it's it's a profound concept that underlies all of this, but we have to walk forward with this data and, and allow it to empower us instead of allowing it to, um, to diminish us and to give people the power around what they share and what they don't and some understanding of how that will be used. So I, I, thank you for APRA's work. Thank you for your leadership in that. It's extraordinary. Thank you, Deb. Thank you for being with me today to lay this out for us and for leaders who are shaping the future in their institutions and their organizations. I wish you the best success in your term as president of APRA, and I'll look forward to watching what you and this great association of prospect development professionals accomplishes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Deb Taft, CEO of Lindauer. Thank you for joining our Lindauer Leadership Series podcast today. Join us next time when we will explore an evolving professional role, the diversity, inclusion, and equity officer. We'll discuss how organizations are defining and reshaping the role, laying internal groundwork for impact, and working to achieve that impact with the new leader in place. You've been listening to the Lindauer Global Leadership Podcast. 
Lindauer is a premier executive search and talent firm dedicated to serving mission-driven organizations. For more information, please visit us at lindauerglobal.com.